in the American colonies or in uh, early European history. It's, you're actually a, 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 a slave by status rather than by subjugation. You've secured a release from your master, who's also your employer. Soap was just recently invented. And so you stop off by this lard, uh, this hanging lard, uh, white, pink, and blue lard that's hanging off of a public trough. You rub your hands with it. You soap yourself up, try to get the stink of the day off of you as you slowly walk down toward this house. It's kind of a secret house. You just found out about it. All the other slaves were talking about it. And so you decided after their invite that you would go down and you would join them. But with each passing step, you got more and more nervous, more and more scared. Something incredible was about to happen. You see, the world that you lived in was a caste system. Most people don't remember that Western European societies, Western culture back in the day also had a caste system similar to what you might find in India or China today. And in the Roman Empire, they had very specific names for these castes. If you happened to be the 1%, really the 0.5%, you were called a senator. And the Roman senators would, uh, would they, they, I mean, we, they, they were the senators. They ruled. They ruled with, with absolute power and authority next to the emperor. Next in that line of caste would be what's called the equestrians. And the equestrians were the same thing, wealth, power, influence, landowners. The reason they got their name equestrians is because they received once a year a horse that was bought with public funds. Uh, That was their gift. And so they would be called equestrians and receive that horse. Next in line, and these would be more in the outlying parts of the empire, you had the decurions. And the decurions had some limited power. They had uh, some money, some wealth, but they weren't the equestrians. They weren't the senators. They were kind of somewhere in the middle. And then next in line, you had what would be called the citizens. And if you remember, being a citizen is a big deal. The apostle Paul, because he was a citizen, he was able to delay his execution in Jerusalem and appeal to the Supreme Court of Rome because he was a citizen. Citizens did not necessarily have money, but they had rights. Next in line were what would be called the freedmen. Freedmen were former slaves who, through either uh, some military service or some means, were able to purchase their freedom. They were not yet at the status of citizen. They didn't have all of those rights yet, but they weren't a slave. They, weren't, uh, uh, they did not have a master or a keeper over them. And of course, at the bottom of the barrel, in which most of the outlying patrons would have fallen into, you would have had the slaves. And again, not necessarily like we might think of slaves, but slaves economically nonetheless. Most of Roman life and fun was associated with guilds, guilds that would form up in Rome and in Turkey and Jerusalem and in Alexandria, Egypt. They had these big guilds, and these guilds would hold these massive pagan festivals. And of course, they would all choose one of the astrological gods, whether it was Aphrodite or the Capricorn or uh, you know, uh, you know, Jupiter, Mars, uh, 
you know, Artemis, they had all these different festivals they would hold in honor. And, and here's what would happen at these festivals. The, the festivals, they didn't have rides and stuff like we have, but they did have food. And anybody knows, if you got a festival of food, you're going to get a lot of people there. And sure enough, at these festivals, they would have lots of people come. But here's how it would work. The higher on the social strata class you were, you got served first. So if you were a senator, you got served before an equestrian. If you were an equestrian, you got served before a decurion. If you were a decurion, you got served before a citizen. If you were a citizen, you got served before a freedman. And if you were a freedman, you got served before a slave. Well, what do you think often happened by the time slaves went through the food line? Food was gone. I mean, they got the cut up bones, the leftover fat portions, if there were any there. Maybe they got a little bit of wonton or, uh, <laughs> or uh, you know, there wasn't much to go around. And so slaves, like always, got the worst end of the deal. But there was a new community that was springing up in the Roman Empire. And they said to themselves, our leader, Jesus, he didn't deal with people like that. He didn't view people like that. When he looked at a person, he didn't see a senator or an equestrian or a decurion or a citizen or a freedman or a slave. He didn't see that. He saw a human being. He saw someone with two eyes and two arms and two legs just like him. And he made a statement that he came not to be served, but to serve. And so now you're a slave walking ever so cautiously to this home that somebody said was a church. You're nervously walking into the courtyard, a wealthy courtyard of a wealthy family. And as you walk in, you see all of the different clothes represented. You see, the way that you knew what class you were from was by what you wore. Slaves, for example, could not wear togas. Citizens could. However, if you were a decurion or an equestrian or a senator, you got to put stripes on your toga, and you would walk around, and everybody would know who you were. And if you walked into a room and you were a slave, you bowed and you went like this, and you put your thumb on your forehead. Why? Because thumbs in the Roman world are what separated a slave from an animal. Animals did not have opposable thumbs. Slaves did. The common punishment for slaves is that they would break their thumbs, saying, now you're just as good as an animal. You're a dog to me. You're a goat to me. So they would put their most prized possession on their forehead, the seat of their power, and they would bow before all of these equestrians and senators and decurions. It was life. It was the way it was. You accepted it. Everybody accepted it. Only tonight was different. As you walk into the courtyard, you see the tassels hung up. You see the togas hung up. The little wreaths that they would wear hung up. And you walk into the door, and someone has a bowl of food. This someone you know well. He's an equestrian, and he kneels down, and he serves you food. This is a community like the Roman Empire has never seen. 
you well up with tears. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. You don't know whether to take it. You don't know whether it's a trick. You're afraid. What do we do? What's happening? But he assures you, take the food. It's okay. He hasn't eaten yet. But when you walked in, he gave you the first bowl. You began to cry. You've never been served in your life. You don't know how it feels. You don't know how to react. And as you began to allow those tears to fall due to the force of gravity from your eye to your chin, you look down and you see this powerful equestrian is crying as well. He has never known the deep bond of humanity like you have known. He has never felt the joy of giving and serving and not showing up to be served. He can't handle it just as much as you can. It is a common scene that happened over and over and over again in the first century church as Christians came to serve, not be served. From the equestrians, there were even two senators in the early church, all the way down to the Nubian slaves that farmed the fields of North Africa. When they came for their meal, they all served each other. Amen? Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. Let's see how a scene like that could have ever taken place. Matthew chapter 20 starts with this, beginning in verse 20. Chapter 20, verse 20. It says that the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down. What, what is kneeling down? It's she was in a posture of worship, just like they would put their thumb on their forehead and kneel down. She's kneeling down in front of Jesus, and she has a request. What is it you want, Jesus asks. She said, I want you to grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other on your left, right? a king, two thrones, right and left. I want my sons to sit on those thrones, one on each side. Jesus says, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it's basically the, trend, you know, the feel of what he says. You do not know what you are asking. I mean, this, you know, <laughs> Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? By the way, what is the cup? It's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of trial. It's the cup of pain and tribulation. And they answered, we can. Now, interestingly enough, I would not argue with their answer because they actually ended up drinking that cup. James would become one of the first killed for his Christian faith in the Roman Empire, and John, in the later years of his life, would be imprisoned to hard labor and exile. So these two men would know suffering, and they did accept it. Verse 23, though, however, Jesus switches it up. He says, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or at my left is not for me to grant. Now, how many of you are going, oh, this is beautiful. Jesus just passes the buck right here and now. He says, these places 
belong to those who've been prepared by my Father. Isn't it great that God the Son can just completely duck this question and say, I'm taking it up to the Father here. But no, actually, this is right theology. He's saying, look, God gives out those things as he gives them out. Don't come and try to manipulate me out of them. Verse 24, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. You know why they're mad? Because they didn't beat them to it. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Now, Jesus has a full understanding of senators, equestrians, decurions, citizens. So he, you know, and they all have these systems of lords and masters and how they've created their social hierarchy. Jesus, thinking of this, says, now you know that this, the Gentiles lorded over them and that their high officials exercise authority over them. Verse 26 not so with you. I'm out to build a new community. I agree. The one where there's lords and masters, higher and lower, upper class, middle class, lower class. I understand that is the way the world works. I acknowledge that. But in my kingdom, that's not how it's going to work. That's not how it works. So when we form this new community, he says this, Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you, the senator, must become the slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Point number one, James and John misunderstood the true nature of Christ's kingdom. Notice what they did not ask. When you look at this, notice what they, they did not ask to serve. They came right up and said, we want to lead. They did not ask, Jesus, what can we do to earn our spot, in, uh, to earn our seat, to earn our place in the throne? They came right away saying, Jesus, we've been noticing you're getting real friendly with Peter. You're really letting him call a few shots around here. We are blood. We are family. We want to make sure we're the ones who get the position, not him. I mean, come on. That's very human. None of us would be beneath that. But like the rich young ruler, Jesus is trying to communicate something to them. Following God is not about adding things to your belt, but about subtracting things. It's not about adding positions and titles and gifts and spiritual gifts and knowledge and degrees. It's about subtracting. Subtracting the prideful, lustful flesh that we cling so hard to protect. Subtracting the bitterness and the anger and the jealousy and to a degree, the desire to be served and the validation that comes from that. They were looking to get something from Jesus. Now, I didn't put it up there, but right before this happens, Jesus says, he tells his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. The very next thing James and John are saying is, we, we, we want to get something from you. We want some position. Jesus is just talking about how he's going to give his whole life for them and then James and John come and say, well, we don't want to give our whole lives for you. We want to get something from you. We want to get some position. 
I mean, this is giving your whole life stuff. But yeah, that's, that's great for you to talk about. But let, you know, well, let's just get out of brass tacks here. This is what we want. <laughs> this week, I had this. This week, there was a women's event on Thursday. And uh, I get an email from one of the coordinators. And they're like, hey, can you, can you have uh, uh, the youth help set up all the chairs? And for a split second, you know what my reaction was? Do you know how many years I have set up chairs for a church event? Do you know how many times I've done? I'm the senior pastor. Have I not earned the fact that I don't have to set up chairs anymore? For a split second, that's exactly where I went. But you know what? I can't ever get to the point where I'm above setting up chairs, where I'm above rolling out tables, where all of a sudden, as the pastor, I don't do that anymore. I have people to do that. I'll call them now. No. No, Tom, get over there and do it. By the, it'll be done by the time you make the first call. No, I don't like it when God speaks to me sometimes. <laughs> Second point, James and John misunderstood the true cost of following Jesus. When I was directing the camps, uh, one time, I, don't, I can't remember how it happened, but the camp went over a Sunday. It was like a Thursday through Monday thing. And so we went over a Sunday, and one of the camp leaders was a pastor, senior pastor. Oh, well, it was a youth pastor time. He was a senior pastor. So we had his own service to preach, and, and we, we gave him the morning off to go and preach at his church. And he said, okay, well, I've got to leave the camp at 4.30. 4.30 in the morning. I remember thinking, man, this is a holy man of God. He's praying at the crack of dawn, you know. And, uh, but I, was, I, I just asked him, I said, why do you have to leave at 4.30? He goes, well, before I go to my church, uh, there's a church down the street that just started in a school, and they don't have any volunteers to help set up the chairs, so I go over and set up their chairs for them. And it just hit me. This pastor goes and sets up chairs for another church down the street because they didn't have the volunteers to do it. And then he drives back to his own church and preaches his two services. And I thought to myself, what kind of man does that? What kind of pastor does that? In the world, we'd say, you're helping the competition, wouldn't we? That church is right down the street. You should be praying for them to get shut down, right? <laughs> but he went... And he unfolded those school chairs, set them up. He was there when they all got there. And then he left and went and preached his own. What an example. What is Jesus saying? There's a new community that I'm establishing on earth. And it's going to surprise you. They should surprise you. Because we come to serve, not to be served. Third thing, just John, James and John misunderstood their true call. They're called to be messengers, not masters, to be witnesses, not necessarily kings. And then finally, James and John misunderstood the fruit of their wrongful ambitions. A lot of times we want to grasp for things. You know, I feel called to be this, and so we begin to grasp for it. Being in leadership for a long time 
it's very interesting to watch how people who are very obviously called to leadership can get so impatient on the road to that leadership that they begin to grasp for things before God has given it to them. If you read through Philippians chapter 2, Paul says a statement, and I'm still racking my brain over it. He says this, Jesus, though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't walk around going, I'm God. Don't everybody see that? Don't you all recognize that? I'm God. I, I, me and the Father are one. How come you all don't get that? No, Jesus didn't do He was completely secure and comfortable in himself. He was comfortable that when God would glorify him, reveal him, and set up his kingdom, he would allow the Father to bring that to him rather than grasping for it. Don't you understand but so often we grasp for things far sooner than God wants to give us them. I remember when I had first joined a church, I must have been, I, I, I converted to Christianity real late in my teen years. So I didn't know anything other than I was just so completely in love with God for rescuing me from the life path I was on. And I remember I felt like I need to do something big. So I went to the pastor and said, I want to be the worship leader. He's like, well, why don't you just join? I don't want to join the team. I want to lead the team. Well, you know, do you know how to play anything? I don't know how to play anything well yet, but I mean, I've got passion. I've got desire. I've got it. Come on, you got to do something with me here. He said, well, look, why don't you learn how to play an instrument first? (laughs) And then we'll talk. And so, I mean, I faithfully tried to learn everything I could learn. And I was just so, I just so badly wanted it. So about nine, ten months later, he's like, all right, you want to lead the team, you can lead the team. And for the next six months, I nearly pulled every hair out of my head out. It was so difficult. I didn't like people. Musicians are so emotional. All these kinds of things. I was just getting frustrated. And one time, I remember, I took three guys. I'm going down to the church basement, and I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. The pastor sees the look on my face. He follows me down, and he grabs my shoulder, and he says, let me take care of this. And he sends me back up. I don't know. Whatever, whatever he said to them, I don't know. But, of course, that week, you know, we got my office, and he said, Tom, is this fun? Do you enjoy this? I looked at him and I said, no, sir, I don't. I deplore this. I hate people. <laughs> and he said, look, he said, why don't, why don't you take this section, which is the piano players, and then why don't, you know, this person would love to come in, take over, get to, and I was just, thank you, Jesus. I want it out so bad. But you see, I had grasped for something that God had not given me, but I'd felt I needed to have. It wasn't its right time. Years later, when I was asked to lead a team again, it was by call. It was because of a conviction. And uh, I remembered the failure, the miserable failure of that first time. And I remember thinking, God, I hope that I've learned my lesson, but most importantly, I hope they've learned their lesson. (laughs) I won't tell you the outcome of that second season. (laughs) One of the reasons why I think we love Jesus, we don't just respect him. I don't just tell people, I respect Jesus. 
there's a love I have for him. Why? I think it's the same reason why you love him. At the end of the day, you know Jesus is for you before he's for himself. As he walked on the earth, he was for people before he was. Do you know how dangerous it was for him to heal on the Sabbath? He sees a man with a shriveled hand. You're not supposed to do ministry on Sunday, Saturday in their day, in their time. And he has compassion because he thought more of the man with a shriveled hand than his own personal safety. That's why we love him. Because deep down we know he'll die for us. Over and over and over again before he looks to his own needs. He's setting up a new community. A community that has come to serve, not to be served. If you look down under the so what, positions are given to serve, not to dominate. I found this on the internet. I just want to read it. It's from a a, a modern theologian. He says, when a person or a church refuses to embrace that a call to follow Jesus is a call to serve, then we lose sight of who we are following truly is. And eventually, this is what the world will see. They will see Christians making being a Christian all about Jesus following and serving us rather than us serving him. Let us not decay into that. A little while ago, I was talking with somebody and they said, Tom, what do you get out of this? What do you get out of all this? What do you get out of all this pastoring stuff? And uh, I said, you know, and I was trying to think about that for a moment. What do I get out of this, you know? And it was at that point, it kind of hit me. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to get something out of this. I'm here to give. I don't think I realized it until I was asked it. I'm thinking, well, you know, the Christmas present was nice, and you know. <laughs> the coffee's great, you know. I mean, you know, but at the end of the day, I can't say that that's what gives me the pleasure or the joy. It's the joy of serving, the joy of giving. To be able to come and say, I I don't want nothing. I want to give everything. Amen? Second thing, positions carry great accountability because they are given by God himself. You know, many of you know, I struggle with being called Pastor Tom. I love it when people just say Tom. Why? Why? Because it lets me off the hook. When you say Pastor Tom, you may say it as a, as a, as a respect. Out of respect for our pastor, we want, we, want, we want to let you know we honor you, we respect you. You're our pastor, we love you, Pastor Tom. But you know what happens with me when I hear it? I walk away going, have I been their pastor? Have I prayed for them? Have I loved them? Have I served them? Have, would I give my life for them? When I'm called Pastor Tom, it's always a moment of accountability for me. Have I been that for you? Have I done that for you? When they call me coach this or leader that or president this, it should always take us back to that question. Have I used that position to serve you? Are you better as a result of me being the leader, of me being the president, of me being the pastor? 
Not, oh, oh, oh. I'm the pastor. Oh, 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 man. Number three, use your position to serve others and you'll be loved and respected. When you serve, you sow a seed. And when you sow that seed, it'll come back to you. Have you ever noticed that sometimes people will call you up to help and you'll go help them, but you don't want to help all people equally. Why? Because sometimes you realize they wouldn't help you. They haven't helped you. Back in the day, I used to move people a lot. And every now and then, I would get a call from a guy who would be the guy in the church that moves everybody because he had the pickup truck, right? And so he would be the guy in the church. If he would ever call and say, Tom, I got a favor to ask you, could you? He wouldn't even have to finish his sentence. I'll be there. I'll do anything I can because for a man like you, I want to serve you. Then you get those calls from people. They're just takers. They're just takers. What they're really going to be glad is at the end of the day that it got done and that now they're not, no longer worried about it. But you can't really say you're going to be sure that when you're in need, they're going to be the person that's going to come through for you. And sure, we still go and help them. We still go and serve them. But make no mistake about it. When we began to serve others, there's a seed planted that will come back to you. I've never met one of the men who used to attend our church, but I feel like I know him. I feel like I know him because everybody who's ever mentioned him, I know this man was a man of Jesus. He served and he served and he served. How do I know he served? Well, because he was dying with cancer and he was in this room pounding nails, painting walls, hanging lights. Most of you know him. His name was Ken Hammer. He died soon after this was finished. Can you imagine that? The example he set. As I was thinking about this, and I'll close with this. Years ago, I was in a prayer group in Seattle. And when I went to it, um, it was a small group, but we decided our small group would be a prayer group. I don't know who made that decision, but, you know, I picked, picked my group and I was in it. When I went there, there was an older lady, and she brought with her a green canister. She wheeled it around, and she had tubes going in her nose, maybe even coming out of her head. I can't remember. It was, she just looked all cybernetic. And we'd sit down to pray, and I found out later she was dying of emphysema. And something impressed me about her. When we would go to pray, she would pray for all of these other people. She would be praying for the church. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, you're dying of cancer and you're thinking of others? If anybody has an excuse to be completely selfish with their prayers right now, I think you would qualify, lady. I'd get in my car. I'd feel guilty. I didn't want to come anymore because this lady was so incredibly servant-minded that all I could do is get in my car and say, God, why don't you heal a woman like that? This is the kind of woman the world needs. One day I showed up and she wasn't there. There was no Facebook email all that back then, so I had to just find out like everybody else found out. She had passed away. 
And I got into my car that night, and I just was torn because I'd fallen in love with this woman. And I remember that the Lord had kind of spoken to my heart and said, Tom, only the place has changed. She's still doing what she loves to do. For Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Bow your heads with me. Worship team, stay for a sec. Before we dismiss, and we won't have time to get to the other video, I'm sorry. You'll have to stay for second service to get it. (laughs) Does our church need help? Absolutely. Was my message written to get more people to serve our church? Not at all. That would be grasping, wouldn't it? be manipulating, it'd be using my position and, and my slot to speak to somehow or another solicit for something, and I'm not. But I will say, we do need help. We do need people to serve. But at the end of the day, this is for us to go out to our world. We are the only Bible they'll ever read. We're the example of Christianity they see. They see the wrong example in the movies. So they got to see the right one in real life. I ask you, God is asking you, be a part of the new community he's setting up where senators become slaves and presidents become servants. Servants.